0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good evening. How are we all this fine day? Excellent. I've had a great day. I went to church this morning. And then we played Monopoly, and I crushed my family. It was great. Yep. Oh, I'll tell you what, Marnie was not a happy camper. Was <laughs> your darling? No. <laughs> I'll pay for this. I told her I've to got a microphone later on today. I'm going to tell everyone. All right. Um, so, tonight, um, we are obviously talking about hope, as David said. and. I know that we're in Advent, however, I felt to come at it from a slightly different angle or a slightly different time period. Um, So tonight, we're going to talk about hope, but in the context of resurrection. And so it'll all become apparent what I'm at least hoping to do anyway. So we'll get there in a sec. So let me just read this quote. And then we'll get into it. So, what oxygen is for the lungs, such is hope for the meaning of human life. Take oxygen away, and death occurs through suffocation. Take hope away, and humanity is constricted through lack of breath. Despair supervenes, spelling the paralysis of intellectual and spiritual powers by a feeling of senselessness and purposeless, purposelessness of existence. As the fate of the human organism is dependent on the supply of oxygen, so the fate of humanity is dependent on the supply of hope. It's pretty deep, huh? And so the thing is, though, that we all hope in something, don't we? We all have a hope in something at some capacity. But it's actually really important of what we have our hope in, because... It's not uncommon for people to have a hope in something that's misplaced. Something that's temporal. Something that's not life-giving. Something that's not edifying. And so the disciples had hope. It was just, for a long period of time, completely misplaced. We see in Luke 24, 21, when they're on the road to Emmaus, and... They're speaking to Jesus, but they don't know that they're actually speaking to Jesus at that time. And they say, "Um, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they thought that this was the guy. We're back in the right horse and we hope he's the one, but he's crucified. So the meaning, the, the implication of their language there is that, well, because we had a hope in something that looked like what we thought it looked like, the fact that he's now been crucified means that he couldn't have been the one. And so now all we do is we're hoping that we get away with this with our lives because we feel we're a bit snookered now. And so because with the crucifixion, no one said, Oh, that's okay. He'll be back in three days. It's all good. And so, as we've been seeing, as we've been going through, this, through Mark this year, is that Jesus was constantly trying to refine and redefine what, who he was and what they needed to have their hope in. And so, but when they crucified, they clearly showed that they still didn't get it. That they backed the wrong horse and that what on earth are we going to do now? We play that movie forward a bit, and obviously it becomes quite different. But before we get into that, let's just define what hope is. So the modern idea of hope is to wish for, to expect, but without certainty of the fulfillment, to desire very much, but with no real assurance of getting your desire. So it's like, well, we hope that it happens, but we've absolutely got no idea of whether it's going to happen or not. There's no assurance there whatsoever. The biblical definition of hope is the confident expectation, the sure certainty that what God has promised in the Bible is true, has occurred or will occur in accordance with God's word. So the hope that the Christian claims to have is that we have a hope in something that is either already occurred i.e. Jesus was here, or that a promise that the Bible says hasn't happened yet, but we believe that the word is true. The funny thing is, we really don't, a lot of us don't really understand what the biblical hope is. Because we have 2,000 years of church history, layer upon layer of added meaning, Misunderstanding, misinterpretation, inflexible denominational traditions, superstitions, heresies, that are all... Sorry to say that word. (laughs) Snap. Um, So, But they're all layered on and over and over. And so when we think of what the resurrection is and what heaven might be and all that sort of stuff, it's all coloured and it's all filtered through this lens and... We're sort of still looking at it going, well, is, what, what's heaven? What's, what, what does it mean to be resurrected? Because there's such a, a misunderstanding and there's been 2,000 years of potential misunderstanding with that. Maria Shriver wrote a children's book called What's Heaven? Now, if you don't know who Maria Shriver is, she is Arnold Schwarzenegger's ex-wife So she's the ex-Mrs. Terminator. And so this is what she wrote in her book, What's Heaven? So she describes heaven as somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on a soft cloud and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you can go to heaven. Um, When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Pity it's absolute rubbish. (laughs) So, but when we think of heaven, sometimes that's what we think about. And it's like, oh, we just get to sit on the cloud. Isn't that nice? Talk to Jesus. Isn't that great? Other things that have clouded our worldview when it comes to heaven is this platonic idea that the present world is somehow shameful and shabby, that we have to escape it, that the, the, the physical isn't, you know, is evil in some way, and that this spiritual life that we're looking towards is something that we're hoping for. Maria Shrive is sort of going down that path a bit. Other pictures of heaven that we have are filtered through the medieval picture. Anyone ever seen Hieronymus Bosch or Botticelli's in the Divine Comedies, their paintings about what what heaven and hell look like? I encourage you to go and have a look at them. They are horrific, torturous things about what the medieval world thought what hell and heaven looked like, that there was these two separate opposite things where we would spiritually go and be, you know, if you were good, you got above the line, and if you're bad, not so much. And hell is something that we don't often talk about very much anymore. Very scared to talk about it. Very scared. Because as a culture now, we believe in a God of love. And surely a God of love would never send good, honest people to hell. Whatever that means for you. Um, I remember listening to a podcast not long ago by Tim Keller. And he was, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he runs a church, um, I think it's called Redeemer Presbyterian, I think, um, out in New York, which are highly cynical, way more than us. And so, oh, the New Yorkers I'm talking about. And, and, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. And so, but he said that he was doing like a Bible study with a whole bunch of people who most of them weren't Christians. And they were like, and hell in some form came up and like, you don't really believe in like all the flames and all that sort of stuff, do you? And he goes, no. And I went, oh, thank God. And he goes, I'm sure the flames are a metaphor for something that's a lot worse, (laughs) you know? And they're like, oh, you know? (laughs) And another popular sort of um, idea that's coming back, subtly, subtly, is purgatory. Is that we're not really ready to meet God yet. So we need to go through this period of refinement before we meet our maker because we're not good enough yet. Yeah. And the, uh, the last one that is coming on strong and has sort of been around as an oldie but a goodie is universalism. That God will endlessly offer the unrepentant, the choice of faith in the wooing of his love until they eventually succumb, and then we can all have a big group hug in heaven together. I remember it was about, I think about 12, maybe 13 years ago, my grandmother died, and I didn't know her. I met her once. Um, They lived in England. And I remember being slightly just like, well, and I knew that she wasn't a Christian, I knew that she didn't follow Christ. And in dealing with the emotions of of all of that, because I was studying at Bible college at the time, and I went to my theological professor, and I said, like, but what does that mean? Like, I'm not really sure. I need to to talk about it and, and flesh it out. What does that actually mean? And he said to me, he goes, something along the lines, there's a moment after you die, And that moment, God can hold it for as long as he possibly can until your grandmother chooses him. And I remember feeling really comforted by that. Unfortunately, it's not true. That's universalism. That God will wrap us all up in his loving arms and we'll sort of all just be together forever. That's not what the Bible talks about. So for the rest of our time here this evening, I'm going to try and cut away all the years of tradition and all the years of superstition and all the layers of all the stuff that we think we think we know and try and look at the characteristics of what the early Christian hope was. So just to... spell out a couple of specifics so the early christian hope of the resurrection it held firmly to a two step belief so there was the first step was death and whatever immediately lies beyond that which some of us would call heaven and the second stage or the second step is a new bodily existence in a newly remade world Luke 23:43 When Jesus is being crucified and the criminal on his on his side says, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus replies to him, truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise And we go, well, what what does paradise mean? But whatever paradise actually is, can't be their final destination. Because in Luke 24, Jesus is back in his resurrected body. So it's not a permanent destination, whatever paradise is. Another verse that we can look at is John 14, verse 2. find it. Where Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. The word for dwelling place there is a word is monae. And it denotes a temporary lodging. Somewhere that's non-permanent. So when we start to look at what the early Christians believed about what happens when we die, when we pass on, is that we, there is a two-stage process. So here are some, early, uh, some characteristics. The first characteristics was that the early Christians firmly believed and the resurrection was central to their theology and their doctrines. It wasn't something side-on. It wasn't an add on It was the centra. And it was quite interesting that that happened because the early Christians came from all sorts of walks of life. They were different, different strains of Judaism, paganism, but it was all centre for all of them. It became the focus of that one point. You can't imagine Paul's thought without it. You can't imagine John's thought without it, really. And... It's enormously important to the second century fathers, such as Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius of Lyon, just to name a few. And it's only sort of towards the late second century, about 150 years after Jesus, that we start to find people using the word resurrection to mean some sort of spiritual experience and in the present leading to a disembodied hope into the future. So it took about 150 years for us to bastardise what we thought resurrection was. And so we've had pretty much almost 2,000 years of us really starting to think differently than what the early Christians thought about what resurrection was. So it's no wonder that we don't really understand what we're talking about when it comes to this sort of stuff. The second characteristic of early Christian belief is that from the start... Resurrection for them meant a new body. That would be a physical body that occupied space and time. It was a transformed body, a body whose material had been created from the old material but had new properties. So it wasn't some spiritual ethereal thing. It was a physical body. 1 Corinthians 15 I'll start at 35, then jump to 42. So this is Paul. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Down to 42 in, verse, in chapter 15. So it is within the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor, in dishonor is, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. N.T. Wright um, talks about this in a bit of depth and he pretty much says that a lot of translators have misinterpreted the meaning of this verse, especially verse 44. It is sown in a physical body and it is raised in a spiritual body. So they take that to mean that we are a physical being and then when, it, when we are resurrected, we are resurrected into a spiritual body. He argues that what Paul means is a new body as in would be a spiritual body, that the, the current present body is animated by the normal human soul, And the future physical body is animated by God's spirit. That it is not a change in physicality, but it is a change in how it is operated. And the last characteristic of early Christian belief is that it's an event in two parts. So the Jews believed Well, they expected the resurrection to be a large-scale sudden event that happened to all of God's people or to the entire world at one time. When God's kingdom would finally come to earth as in heaven. And there's no suggestion in Jewish belief anywhere that one person will rise from the dead in advance of the rest. But obviously, as we know, the early Christians believed that it was an event that happened in two parts. And we'll break that down in a bit. I've got some verses for you to talk a bit more about that. So what are some of the images? So is this okay? You're very quiet. No? Okay, cool. So what are some of the images that are that are the basis for the, second, are the first and second century Christians? And their hope. The first one is death and sin so we're going to stay in first corinthians 15 for a little bit starting at verse 12 now is if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then christ has not been raised and if christ has not been raised then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain if we are even found to be we are even found to be misrepresenting god because we testified of god that he raised christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are raised oh sorry for if the dead are not raised then christ has not been raised if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have died in christ have perished for if this life only we have hoped in Christ. We are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's nice and light, isn't it? Hey? So what he's saying there, or what at least I'm going to pull out of that for us tonight, is what Paul's saying is that sin is the root cause of death. And if death has been defeated it must mean that sin has been dealt with. But if the Messiah has not been raised, then it means that death hasn't been dealt with and we are still in our sin. And that the foundational hope of the Christian faith that Christ has dealt with our sins is absolutely based on nothing and we have no hope. So it's pretty foundational, but that's what Paul's saying. Let's carry on, verse twenty. But if, uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead had, has also come through a human being. For as all died, all died in Adam; so all be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and then his coming those, sorry, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. So what that's saying is that all things are in under his subjection except for God the Father. Okay? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Like I said before, there was that Two stages, the first fruits and then everything after. It was not found in Jewish thought. The first fruits signifies that there's a great harvest still to come. And what Paul's talking about here, it goes back to the Jewish festivals of Passover and Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. So if you didn't know, Passover and Pentecost were things before Christians took them over and made them something different. So Passover was uh, the time when the first crop of barley was presented before the Lord. And Pentecost, seven weeks later, was the time when the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Messiah has been raised as the first fruits of the resurrection. And that all those will be raised who are in Him at His final appearing, and so, and then only then will Jesus complete the implement, implementation of the victory that He won at Calvary. I don't think I said that clear enough. No, say it again. Yeah, because even I didn't understand what I just said. So the Messiah has been raised at the start of the general resurrection and those who belong to him will be raised at his final appearing. So that is the first fruits and then the harvest. And then and only then will Jesus complete the implementation of the victory he won at Calvary. This is the time... When all his enemies, including death, will be put under his feet in fulfillment of the final promise. So, when we start to look at this two step first fruits harvest, what we're looking at is that there's a promise for something that's happened, there's a promise for something that's happening, and there's a promise for the hope that we have for the future that Christ. We'll finish the work that he began at Calvary. We're still in First Corinthians 15. Just going to pull out the very last couple of words from verse 28. So that God may be all in all. So this is one of the clearest statements of the very centre of the future-orientated New Testament worldview. And so we glimpsed this already a bit in, well, not a bit, a lot, in Isaiah. So we'll go to Isaiah 11. Now, Isaiah 11 is a foretaste for Isaiah um, 65 and 66 um, for the new creation passages. So the second half... Of verse 9 in Isaiah 11, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I find that really intriguing. Because how can the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. So the imagery here is one of God flooding the universe with himself. It's as though. The universe or the entire cosmos was designed as a receptacle for his love. So when we go back to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, it's a future tense that everything is designed to be filled, flooded and drenched in God and in his love. The last image we'll look at is marriage. And we'll go to Revelation 21. Verse 1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for a husband. It's a very different picture of this human soul leaving earth and going up to heaven. The language in the Bible, the language in Scripture is that of coming, not of going. And so when we start to look at the symbolic imagery of this husband and wife, it takes us back to Genesis 1. That... The creation of male and female would together reflect the glory of God and his image into the new world. And so what's promised in these passages is what Isaiah foresaw in, chapter, in, verse, in chapters 65 and 66, that the new heavens and the new earth replacing the old heaven and the old earth, which were bound to death and decay. So what does that mean for us? First, we need to remember that resurrection isn't some far off possibility. It's, it's happened. It's happened in our history. It's an event that happened in our own world. And it's not some event that you can believe bits of and not others. Some of it might make us feel uncomfortable, potentially. But it's not an event that we can pick and choose from. N.T. Wright says, If you accept the bodily resurrection of Jesus, all the streams flow in one direction. And if you don't, they flow in the other direction. He goes on further to say, If you go in the other direction, away from the bodily resurrection, you may be left with something that looks a bit like Christianity, but it won't be what the New Testament writers were talking about. So this is a manner, a matter of a worldview, a way of indexing. And so when we start to look at what the bodily resurrection of Jesus is, it's something that we can take a compass bearing on. Because we know that it's stable and we know that it's solid to believe in anything else is like taking a compass bearing off a flock of sheep so does that mean that we just now get to sit back and go well I'm going to get a new body it's going to be cool I'm going to be able to walk through walls and stuff Jesus is going to be here too does that mean that I just get to sit down and relax, and you know, not really have to worry about that anymore? After pretty much, well, discussing the resurrection body in verse in chapter fifteen, in quite complex detail, in verse fifteen, sorry, chapter fifteen, verse thirty, verse fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord, your labour is not in vain. As Christians, we have work to do. And it's not because that's going to provide us with salvation. And it's not because that's going to get us better kudos with God. The hope of the resurrection isn't simply about straightening out what we think about life and death. It's actually the central mission of the church. Caring for the poor, the sick, refugees, the downtrodden. It isn't some add-on. It isn't something extra to evangelism. It's it's central. It's essential. It's a vital part of our mission. Jesus, Jesus often got a hearing from the people because of what he was doing. And in the midst of his doing, they heard the message that they'd been longing for. So pursue what your interests are. You don't have to drop it all and become holier than now and start wearing beige. Sorry, that just came out. Um, <laughs> what you do has value and it's not done in vain because this isn't a world that we're hoping to escape from that will eventually get rid of. Pursue the Lord and undertake the central Christian mission. And in the midst of your doing, allow people to hear the message that they are longing for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this is something that has happened, is happening, and is promised to continue happening. Heavenly Father, I pray that you speak to those in this room tonight, Father, that as they ponder what it means not only to be a Christian but what it means for our future that you engage them in a life that's in pursuit of you that they stop trying to run and hide and hope that one day life will be better when they get to escape Heavenly Father, but I pray that they have eyes to see and ears to hear that as they hear this message, Lord, that they hear your message. And that they and that we are able to undertake what it is that you've called us to undertake so that people can hear the fresh message of who you are the only message that